Good morning, Flag of the Doctors are in. I'm Dr. Scott Cleos. And I'm Dr. Andrea Cleos. We are here once again to talk about your health and health issues right here in Flagler, Volusia, and St. John's County. I had a couple of interesting patients this past week. Uh, we've talked about the, um, the kyphoplasties, the spine jacks, the vertebroplasties, that spectrum of, of um, uh, treating the spinal column, patients who have acute or subacute fractures. And I had a very nice family who came in and uh, very active. I know the husband was like 79 years old and the, the, the wife, you know, she was probably a couple of years younger than him, but just this beautiful Nordic looking older lady with, you know, bright blue eyes and blonde hair. And the poor woman was in absolute agony and they still go dancing regularly and they go, you know, play all these different sports and about a month and a half ago, she was doing some dancing twisted and felt something pop in her back. And ever since then, she's had progressively worsening back pain uh, to a point where she couldn't get out of bed, you know, and she actually went in and saw uh, some orthopedic group and uh, they told her to put a wear a brace and send her home and things got worse. And they actually lived next to one of my partners and they said, well, why don't you come in and let us, you know, look at it and see if there's something we can do. So we did the MRI and the CT and she got progressive compression of like her L3 vertebral body and uh, to a point where she was getting electric shocks down her legs and all that. And it was the only thing she had. Otherwise, her bones looked pretty good, but she was osteoporotic for sure. So um, so I talked to her about it and I ended up putting the spine jack in, which is the little device that you slip in through the, the pedicles, the little tubes coming back off the vertebral body to the posterior elements. And once you get those things in place, you jack them up, you literally jack the spine up and then you fill it with cement. And, um, after six weeks of just not being able to get out of bed after two hours, she woke up from anesthesia and she was so happy that her back wasn't hurting, but she was afraid to move. She goes, I haven't felt this good in, in, you know, a month and I'm just afraid to move. (laughs) But we called her back on, uh, on the weekend. She called up to make sure it was okay for her to, you know, take some Tylenol or something. My nurse talked to her and I saw them this weekend. I said, well, how did she feel she was doing? She goes, well, she's sore. I'm like, yeah, but is her pain better than what it was? And he goes, well, I didn't really ask her. I'm like, well, (laughs) you need to find out if the patient calls in, if the pain's worse than before. So I said, why don't you call her back tomorrow? Because I saw them at two in the morning. I had to go in for a stroke on Saturday, Sunday morning, Saturday night. Uh, We started Saturday night, finished up Sunday morning. And I said, why don't you call them back the next day, um, you know, to m- this morning sometime and just, you know, inquire how they're doing. Because I think that's a nice thing to do as well. You know, right. it just shows that they care, that we care. And uh, he did. And he calls me back. She goes, she's a thousand times better. She said, she's just a little sore from the surgery, which is what I expected, which, uh, you know, made me feel good that, you know, this thing actually worked. But it's just amazing to me how patients will come in with an acute or subacute injury like that. And a lot of the doctors who deal with these kind of fractures will just, you know, give them very conservative treatments like a brace and tell them to go home. Maybe they're not familiar with the spine jack because it's not being done well, in orthopedics. Well, it's not even just spine jack, but it, I think they do do them. Spine jack, I mean, it's, it's kyphoplasty. It's all of them. It's just, you know, segment augmentation. The spine jack just lifts the vertebral body up. But, you know, it's such a shame. You, I mean, you remember when your dad went through this, when he yeah. fell after coming back from 
Italy and they messed up his, uh, you know, antihypertensives and he got up in the middle of the night to go pee and fell down and broke his back. And I sent him in and one of my partners did a kyphoplasty on him. He couldn't move until he had that kyphoplasty done. So, you know, it's something to keep in, in mind. And if the hospital you're at isn't doing something for you, you need to be transferred out and and uh, actually, you know, get it done somewhere. Because I think it can make a world of difference if it's no sense suffering for a month or six weeks, right? Or two so, or three months for that matter. Or two or three months, yeah, if you've got ongoing uh, compression. So, you know, it's just, I think the incentive to actually intervene on patients, as we've talked about before, is not as great as it used to be because we're not truly in a um, capitalistic market anymore. You know, with more and more doctors being employed and hired by hospital systems, there's no incentive to actually produce or perform. You know, yeah. Which is a shame. I mean, because this is the stuff you go through, and it's it's you know fine if you're the healthcare system, and you know great way to save money, like any socialistic type you know healthcare delivery system. But if you're the patient, it's agony. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I just and the patients wouldn't necessarily know to come know. to an interventional radiologist who does surgeries. Well, it's not just interventional. I mean, you know, there are surgeons do it, and right. an orthopedic but surgeons. Maybe the orthopedic didn't do it, and maybe they didn't want to refer to their colleagues, which is a yeah. shame because it's it's really a conflict of care because we all took an oath to do no harm, and and if you know that your partner's down the road, but maybe they don't know, maybe they are so busy doing their own world or so isolated. And that's a problem when healthcare is broken up into segments like cardiology is cardiology, immunology, and everybody does their own thing. And unless you've got somebody who's really good about knowing what's happening, each one of the systems and science is constantly evolving and each one of the systems has new things that you're not up on top of it and you don't realize there could be something to That's help. the problem. But uh, in years past, your family practitioner or your intern has kind of orchestrated your care. And, you know, they would make sure they knew what your medications were and were kind of the point contact for your overall health. And then they would uh, refer out to subspecialists if you needed something specific like cardiac bypass or, you know, some kind of bone fix to go to the orthopedist. But that's what we've lost, you know, as they've replaced primary care docs with these physician extenders, there's really no one that's good at orchestrating your care anymore. So you've got a bunch of independent doctors who are taking care of their one body part, and, you know, they may be giving you multiple medications that interact with each other. And I, I used to send patients to you all the time. We've mentioned it on this show before. They'd come in with a list of 20 different medications and they said they felt horrible. And I would pray that they were, you know, service connected. I'm like, you don't, you didn't happen to be in the military by any chance. And they're like, yeah, I was. I'm like, oh, awesome. I know someone I can say. <laughs> and I'd send them to Dr. Andrea and she'd call that list down from 20 down to about 12 or, you know, nine. And all of a sudden they felt better, you know? So that, that's the problem. If, unless you've got somebody who cares and is willing to spend the time, um, you know, these patients are just doing what each of their subspecialists tell them to do. And sometimes it's making them worse. Yeah. Well, it's not orchestrated care. And so really making sure you have a good internist or good family practitioner that really is connected, well connected in the community with all the specialty so that they can then help direct your care and be there to guide you. Yeah, there's a new procedure out on this or that or, hey, let me see what I can find for you. That's one of the things that I really miss in radiology is that you know, now that we've gone to a more digital format, the interaction with our primary care docs is more superficial because, you know, in years past, 
I remember some of the docs, they'd show up with a stack of films in their hands in the afternoon. Like, can you go over these with me? Which and you'd was, be like, oh. I was like, oh, God, I'm on call. But the that interaction with the clinician was very helpful sometimes because as you're looking at the study, they're giving you clinical information. And now we, we kind of depend on our technologist, the patient themselves, and hopefully the referring physician to provide that same um, history and information because and a quick it can write up. Yeah, that's quickly it can really digestible. change the way you look at the films. And you know, you if they're coming in with specific discomfort in a certain area, you may look at that area a little differently or a little more thoroughly than you would if you're just doing an overview of, you know, a chest and an abdomen or a CT scan of the chest and abdomen. But if they say the patient has right lower quadrant pain you know you're going to look at that appendix, right? You know, if they say, this is right lower quadrant pain, you're going to make sure you look at that appendix. If they just come in with abdominal pain, you know, you may miss a subtle uh, appendicitis, an early, you know, appendiceal tip inflammation because you're not attuned to that, you know. But so that's why the history is so important. But, you know, as we've become more digital with our charts, our EMR, electronic medical records and PAC systems, and we're moving information around digitally, we don't have as much of that, uh, you know, personal contact with the clinicians. And I think it's uh, sometimes a bit of a disservice to the patient. So, right. but, you know, we, I guess it is what it is. We're well, not going an, back. For it's sure. important one from the takeaway from what we just talked about is if you have back pain and you've had a quick fracture of one of the vertebral bodies that you understand there's such a thing called spine jack. And or kyphoplasty. Or kyphoplasty, both of which inject cement, both of which are raising up the uh, the disc that's been fractured, well, but the, they do the it differently. The body, yeah. yeah. And, and they, you know, they when kypho, you're right, kyphoplasty first came out, what they proposed is that balloon blowing up actually moved the end plates. I have never seen that happen. I mean, you know, not that I'm an expert in that, but, you know, that balloon blows up and the most, you know, unless you've got a really bad fracture that moves with the balloon, most of the time, it's just going to uh, bust up some of those interstices within the uh, vertebral body itself, you know, because there's a little matrix uh, that is inside each of those vertebral bodies, like a cross matrix that gives the vertebral body intrinsic strength, but reduces the weight, right? I mean, it's really cool how we're designed. So that vertebral body is designed to basically support the, you know, the axial load of our entire weight of our body, especially the lower vertebral levels. But if those things were solid pieces of bone, we'd probably weigh twice as much of what we weigh, right? So to make our bones more you know, manageable so that they're not weighing down our muscles and make us more agile, uh, God designed us with these you know, little interstices, like little structural support sh struts inside of that vertebral body. And that's what you kind of move out of the way and, and create a space with that balloon when you're in there. So it's going to break up those little struts before it actually moves an end plate, I think, and most of the time. So, but you know, it's still. But then, what they do with the spine jack? Yeah, is the spine jacks jack different. it up a little bit higher and yeah. and, and basically fill that, that space one, up you, with uh, cement. That's exactly right. So that one, you are actually moving the end plate, and you try to get apposition between the cortex inferiorly and superiorly. And then once you get to the solid cortex, you know, the, you keep jacking that thing up until you see the end plate move into a more normal position and then you secure it all with cement and then once you have that uh that support that infrastructure then it allows the bones to heal because the painful part of a fracture is the moving fracture itself right there's nerve fibers in there and every time 
you move those things or they rub up against each other, it's excruciating. So if you can go in there and stay, and they also think because the, um, the cement itself sets up via a exothermic reaction, so it gives off heat, like significant heat, they think it actually kills some of the nerve fibers within the vertebral body and that may, you know, afford some pain relief immediately as well. So mm-hmm. good so- stuff. But very important to know that that's an option out there if you've fractured one of your vertebral columns or vertebral bodies. And the interesting thing is you you don't just have to have an acute fracture. You can have a fracture that's been there for three or four or five months and still be a candidate for these procedures. So make sure if you are suffering from back pain and it's been several months and you're not exactly sure what happened, you can go to your primary care doctor and ask. And if it's of interest to you, you and they can refer you to an interventional radiology department or apartment uh, that actually does kyphoplasty um, or spine jack. So very important to know and make sure you always find a good internist or family practice physician who helps guide you around. And if you don't have one and you can't find one, we're always happy at Shield of Life to help guide your care. But, you know, to to be honest, if it's a chronic fracture that doesn't have ongoing height loss and there's no edema, we probably wouldn't treat that. Because it's already stable. It's already stable. So, right. you know, if it's fractured and it's stabilized, then it's already been through the healing process and it probably doesn't need any kind of augmentation. The only time you would, but that doesn't mean you can't have a two-month-old fracture that doesn't have ongoing fracture. We've seen that before where patient has, you know, loss of height, nobody does anything. We image them two months later and they've had pain for two months and there's still edema. And that means that edema means that there's ongoing fracture or injury or instability. So that, so that, that one the height is treat. still being lost. There's height still being lost, right? Or there's mm-hmm. still movement of the fracture fragment. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break. I have another patient I want to talk about, unless you've got something you want to talk about. I don't want to hog well, the show. I had some amazing weight loss this week in some of my patients, but we can talk about that at the next show. Okay. All right. So in the interim, if you have any questions about what we've talked about the first half, you can email us at the doctors and D-O-C-T-O-R-I-S-I-N at WNZF.com. You're listening to the doctors in on WNZF News Radio 1550 AM, 94.9 FM. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Radiology Associates has been a trusted name in Volusia, Flagler, and St. John's County for over 50 years. Radiology Associates is the first and only radiology provider to bring our neighbors of Flagler County 3 Tesla MRI, 64 Slice CT, and Time of Flight PET CT in our Palm Coast Imaging and Town Center Imaging locations. This is our community. Our doctors live here and strive to provide only the best care to you, our neighbors. For more information about Radiology Associates, visit us online at radiologyassociatesimaging.com. And we're back for those of you just joining us. We spent the first half of the show talking about the awesomeness of kyphoplasty, spine jack, vertebroplasty, all these cement augmentation procedures that are basically done on an outpatient basis that can, in many times, many situations improve patients' discomfort almost immediately if they've got an acute or subacute fracture. So, you know, just to clarify those terms, <laughs> acute is something that happened recently. It's just, you know, happened a couple of days ago. Subacute may be a couple of weeks old, but they're still having pain. Chronic is something that's been going on for quite some time. So, you know, patients can have acute, subacute, or chronic disease processes. That's what we mean by but all subacute those can even be ongoing for months. Right, right. It doesn't have to be that chronic hits a certain month period. No, it's not an absolute. Chronic but... is more like years is what we usually, but it can be even six months or eight months. 
Right. So I had another patient I want to tell the audience about real quick. Um, this was an interesting um, case, not so much for the procedure itself, but uh, the consequences afterwards. So I was on call last weekend, and um, I get a phone call about a gentleman who was born in 1936, so he's like 86, 87 years old, and he was having stroke-like symptoms. And I look at the scan, and it does look like he's got a pretty big clot sitting in his right middle cerebral artery, right at the junction of what we call the M1 and M2 segments, which is where the middle cerebral artery branches into three smaller branches that go around the convexity of the brain there. And um, I went in and saw this guy. He actually got transferred from Deltona Hospital. And I told him, as soon as he gets in the ambulance, call me, and then my team and I will meet him there. So it was almost perfect timing. And I go and see the guy, and uh, he's surprisingly doing very, very well, considering the amount of, of obstruction that he had in his, in his brain. He had some, you know, a little bit of a facial droop, but he was moving his arm. He really didn't have any speech issues and so on and so forth. And I called the neurologist. I'm like, this is how he's presenting. Because, yeah, that's how he was before, but, you know, he's still got a stroke score of like six, and uh, he probably needs something done. So I go and I look at his images and the guy is what we call a vasculopath, which means all his vessels are just a mess. <laughs> I mean, absolute mess. Probably smoker, probably eating beef. Who knows? Probably. French fries. I don't know. But, you know, drinking the, beer. <laughs> the problem was, so, there, so I had to get into the right internal carotid artery. Okay. So the right side of the neck. This guy had something called a type three arch and we classify the arch depending on the shape of the arch and where the branch vessels come so off. So really quickly, when you reference the arch, it means from your heart, the big aorta, the big vessel that comes out that then takes blood to the rest of your body, that is like a candy cane, the arch of a candy cane, that hook. And then from the little tip of the candy cane, not the long stem, the apex, the apex that actually sends blood then to the lower extremity, to your arms and legs and everywhere else. So he's talking about that arch. So I'm talking about cane. the arch of the candy cane. And right at the top of that, you hope that the three vessels that come off of there, the brachiocephalic, the left common carotid and the left subclavian all come off the top of that arch. But as we get older, you get something called uncoiling of the aorta, uh, maybe some ectasia, which is some dilation, and that distorts everything so that the arch almost looks like it migrates more distally. And so, you know, the best case scenario is like the arch and the and what we call the arch branch vessels are all on the same level. But you can actually have the peak of the arch higher than the vessels coming off of the arch, you know, over time. And we classify those as a type 1, type 2, or type 3 um, arch. And the type 1 is basically the standard one that I just talked about where the, where the branch vessels come right off the peak of the arch. Type 2, I want to say that the, the first branch vessel uh, comes off less than two uh, times the diameter of that vessel. So if the vessel is, let's say, a centimeter then if, the, if it's two times, that would be two centimeters. If the um, uh, vessel it comes off less than two centimeters from the peak of the arch, that's a type two. And then if it's greater than two, then it's, you know, a type three. This guy had a type three plus. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen one so bad. So basically, the first branch of the, of the aorta was coming off way, way down, almost four centimeters below the peak of the arch. And you got to 
understand i know you guys haven't been there during a car a catheterization of the of the arch vessels but the further that vessel is down that arch the harder it is to get into because you're basically coming up from the leg you got to go over the arch you got to come back down the arch and then you have to have a catheter go curve back around and then go up towards the head again so you can see as i'm trying to push that catheter from the groin it's going to want to go down towards the heart it's not going to want to go up into the head so those are almost impossible to get from below, right? So recognizing that and deciding it was, you know, 1230 in the morning and I wasn't going to mess around with that because there was no way I was getting in, I said, well, we're not going to make it that way. So maybe I'll come in through the wrist, okay? So the wrist um, has two vessels called the radius and the ulna, and we usually use the radius for access. But before we do that, we have to do something called a um, Bordeaux test. Is it Bordeaux? Bordeaux? Yeah, I think it's Bordeaux. No, it is Barbeau. I keep saying Bordeaux. Barbeau. I want to say the wine. It's a Barbeau test where they actually occlude the radial artery and they put a little pulse ox on the fingers and they make sure that the ulnar artery can supply the hand in case you trash that radial artery. He failed that, okay? So his vessels were crap and you couldn't get in through the wrist. So the only other option I had was to stick his carotid directly, which we really don't like to do because it's the vessel going so up the to the brain. the carotid is the neck vein. Yeah. Right? It's it goes right to your It's brain. the artery. It's the neck. It's the artery. Artery it goes, goes straight right up to the brain. brain, right? And we were always told in training, you never stick the carotid, right? But if the guy's already had a stroke, you're not going to give him more of a stroke, hopefully. Right. So, and there's no other option. Yeah, I had no other option. He's going to continue to get worse. Yeah. So you so do I something no better than nothing. So I stuck the carotid, which I've done a couple of times. We went up there and I got the clot. And it was a large amount of clot. So surprisingly, it wasn't doing that bad. So I opened him up and he had completely normal flow. And getting into that carotid was not easy because that vessel was calcified. And so normally when on our way out, we close that access with some kind of closure device. And the two we have is like a little stitch on a, on a, on a stem that we can put in there and actually sew that vessel up. But you can't do that up in the carotid because the tip of this thing's too long to use up in that area. It's usually used in the groin. And the other one is called an angioseal device. And an angioseal is basically a little like resorbable plastic foot plate that comes out of a catheter. And then once you get that thing out, you pull it back. And as you pull it back, you know, that foot plate comes up against the anterior wall. And then you push this little plunger down and it actually slides this little plug of thrombin and gel foam down to the outside of the vessel. That's so, cool. Yeah. So basically it, 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 plugs, up it, it p- plugs the hole that you made in that vessel. The problem is, imagine this. So imagine you've got a really diseased vessel, and you go in there and you go a little too deep. So when that foot plate comes out, it hooks onto a, uh, a plaque, a piece of calcium or something, a shelf inside that vessel. So you're pulling back, thinking you're up against the wall, but you're really in the middle of the vessel. And then as you push that little plug down, what's going to happen is it's either going to crush that vessel closed, right, because the foot plate's way in, or the, the little uh, plug itself is actually going to go into the vessel. And I've had that happen one time in the past. That's why I don't like to use this device very much. So I was hemming and hawing about whether I should close this guy because I knew he 
was going to be tough, you know, just because of his vascular situation. And I was talking to my techs. I said, well, it's now Saturday morning at two o'clock in the morning, and I'm not going to get a vascular surgeon up, you know, to help me get this thing out. And I don't know if they're going to come in tomorrow. And I really don't want this guy with a catheter in his neck all weekend. So let's just try to close it. So, you know, to make sure that this thing's in the right place, you barely want to be in the vessel. And the way you know that is when the tip of this is in that blood vessel, there's blood that squirts out the side of a proximal hole. And the problem was he was so calcified, it's not like I could barely push it in. It's like I'd have to push, 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 and then it would pop in, and then I'd pull back slowly until it stopped. And I kept doing this, trying to figure out <laughs> where the perfect position was, and finally I thought I figured it out. So I deploy the thing, I put it out, I take everything up, as soon as I lift my hand, blood comes pouring out of the hole, which is a bad sign. That means something didn't right. it's work. It's not plugged. It's not plugged, okay? That's so blood's sure. coming out. So something, something's not right. So I take the ultrasound and I look and, you know, what you want to see on the ultrasound is a nice beating vessel. So below my plug, I could see a nice beating vessel. And as I come up, I see this bright little spot where I can't see a vessel, just a bright spot. And then above that, the vessel doesn't, you know, beat anymore. It's just just kind of flaccid. So basically what I did is I deployed the closure device. Right in the middle or I crushed the vessel. So vascular surgery. Yeah. So not having to call, you know, one. So now I'm calling the vascular surgeon emergently at two fifteen in the morning, saying, "Can you help me out?" And he's a nice guy. We went actually trained together at UF. He comes in. I stayed with the patient. I went upstairs with him. We got the patient all set up so he could just walk in and do the procedure. And um, he finished up at about 3 o'clock, but I watched him do it. He cut down on the carotid, and I left my string dangling out so he had a guide of where, you know, my plug was. And he opened up the vessel. The plug was actually in the wall of the vessel. So it was in the wall of the vessel. The foot plate was inside of the— You had no chance. Oh, no way. It was just wasn't going to happen. You know, I'm looking at it, and I looked inside the vessel. I'm like, there's no way this would have worked. So— But the good thing is he got that out. Um, He put a little patch on there, basically did a carotid endoterectomy. I saw his image in the next day. The guy was normal. So, you know, it just goes to show you. Well, the cool thing is he had two procedures. He not only solved his stroke, but he would have had to have his carotid bypass. So so he already had that done, too. He got that done, too. So So, all in the price of one swoop. (laughs) I mean, but, you know, it's compulsive, complete medicine. It's it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, God, I know this is going to be a problem. You know, you just know. And it was, but it's fixable. When you have carotid carotid arteries that are stiff. So if you ever find your doctor is ultrasounding your carotids or listening for bruises in your neck, it's because they're trying to see if that flow is irregular. And, and when they do, they then do an ultrasound. And then after they do an ultrasound, they usually do some type of other higher-end imaging. And usually you do a bypass around those very hard vessels, because just like Dr. Scott was saying... Well, it's not a bypass. In a carotid, they do, an, they do a carotid... Um, yeah. They end our So what they'll do, I mean, it's a very quick procedure because it's fairly superficial. Right. But they actually cut down, they dissect away down to the carotid, as long as it's a virgin neck. And, you know, if no one's ever been in there before, it's very straightforward. And then when they open the vessel up, they can actually remove the plaque inside. You know, they can actually peel that away. And then they put a little patch on there to open it up. So it's pretty cool. But normally they don't bypass it unless it's some extreme situation. Now, the ones that have already had that procedure or they have, you know, post-radiation because they had throat cancer, those vessels will shut down and the surgeons won't do those because they're not easy because all the normal, yeah, the normal, the normal tissue planes are disrupted and those patients will put a 
stent in for them, and then we'll open it up that way, which is also a good procedure, but the better of the two procedures is the carotid endarterectomy because it's so superficial, they can do it so quickly, and it's durable, you yeah. know, and you don't have any foreign body left in you except for a patch on the outside. So this is why we don't want our vessels hard. So if any of you are listening and you're smokers, this is smoking accelerates the hardening of those artery, the thickening inside the vessels. This is why eating steak, 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 beef, beef, beef. Here and we go, bashing the high steak. High fatty foods, steak. not healthy fat, um, but you know, lard, bacon, ham. You know, I love it when I say, okay, you guys, let's get off the pork. And then it's like, well, all I have is bacon once in a while, or I have pork chops. Well, that is ham. Oh, it is? Okay. So remember, those things, those high-saturated fat items that we eat add to that clogged arteries along well with the smoking. So those are kinds of things and behaviors we want to change so you don't end up like this patient that Dr. Scott was talking about. Andrew is 87 years old. He's enjoying his life. You're so. right. He did I mean, enjoy his life. And, you know, we sure. saved him to live another some, 10 years. But some patients some can even just be 40 and 50, no, 40 right. and 50 and have those diseases. So there are things to, it's not that you can't have your special treats occasionally, but we don't need to have them three times a month or 10 times a month. I'm getting but that patient a T-bone when I see him next time. <laughs> so you can come back and do the other side next year? <laughs> Andrew, at this point, he should just keep going, whatever he was doing. I mean, it's working for him. So, yeah. All right, guys, that's all the time we have. If you have any questions for myself or Dr. Andrew, as always, you can email us at the doctors and D-O-C-T-O-R-I-S-I-N at WNZF.com. Stay happy. Stay healthy. We'll see you guys next time. The doctors are out.